0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it was a fantastic discovery by a man devoted to discovering just such a work. The year is 1817, and a man named Hanka is visiting his home region. He's a Czech writer, pushing his fellow Czechs to shake off the influence of Germany and Germanic literature, and to return to their Czech roots— including writing in the Czech language. And lo and behold, he finds in the vault of a church a manuscript written in old Czech, with fragments of a literary poem dating back several centuries, infused with what he called a truly Homeric spirit. Aha, here is a rock upon which a history of Czech literature, and indeed a people's sense of national identity, can be founded. Only one question remained. Was this manuscript real? Was it forged? And when others were found, the same question arose. And the more popular and successful these manuscripts became, pointing the Czech people toward a new sense of pride and nationhood, the louder those questions loomed. What if these weren't real? What then? We talked to author David Cooper, professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, about the Czech manuscripts today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you to everyone who has signed up to be a patron at patreon.com slash literature. That's a small monthly contribution, or to everyone who has donated to the show at historyofliterature.com slash donate. I love you all. You are truly angels here on Earth. Now, let's get right to it. It's snowing like crazy as I record this here in Washington, D.C., or the outskirts thereof, and I'm cold, and I can't wait to get out of this drafty studio and into a hot toddy. Well, I don't drink those, but you know what I mean. Under the big blanket in front of the fire— watching a little something-something on television. You should check out the documentary Yodorsky's Dune, by the way. That's Yodoresky with a with a J, J-O-D-O. We're going to have an episode on Jodorowsky coming up soon, and his film is a delight. This film, I mean, the documentary about the making of... Well, Jodorowsky is quite a guy. He attempted to make what would have been the greatest, most ambitious science fiction movie of all time. And yes, I'm including 2001, A Space Odyssey. He assembled a group of spiritual warriors to be part of the filmmaking efforts, including artists like H.R. Giger and Moebius, and then actors like Mick Jagger and Orson Welles and Salvador Dali and many others. And, and well, you'll... You'll see for yourself. The interviews with Yodorowsky are a delight. He's a great spirit. And his ambition for this thing, which was to, to change the consciousness of the world, is infectious. It's available on some streaming services here in the States. It's on Max. So that gives you a little prep work. But if you don't get to it, that's fine too. We'll have everything you need in our episode as we do today. David Cooper has been researching and writing about the Czech manuscripts. So let's bring him out to explain all of that, the little corner of literary history. And then we'll have a a My Last Book with Jesse Cavadlo, our Don DeLillo expert. Will he choose one of Don DeLillo's books to be the last book he will ever read? We will see. But first, David Cooper. Okay, joining me now is David L. Cooper, who is Associate Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Illinois. He's also the author of Creating the Nation, Identity and Aesthetics in Early 19th Century Russia and Bohemia. He's here today to discuss his new book, The Czech Manuscripts, Forgery, Translation, and National Myth. David Cooper, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So, there's a forgery we're going to be talking about today, and I think a lot of people will maybe be a little bit familiar with the Ossianic poems, and I think there are some similarities here. So, maybe we should start with that. Who was Ossian, and what did those poems do for Scottish literature?
1: Yeah, so the poems of Ossian were first published by uh, James Macpherson in 1760, and Ossian was the traditional author of the poems so he was a both a warrior and a bard supposedly from the the third century and a lot of the scottish oral tradition songs were attributed to him Uh and so Macpherson, under some desire and requests from some literary patrons produced a translation of some of this material into english or at least it was presented as a translation and presented as a literal translation of these these sorts of ancient songs are songs that had roots in, in an ancient period right. but in fact they weren't they weren't really translations at all in a certain <laughs> sense <laughs>
0: right mcpherson had kind of made this up we think
1: to a certain degree i mean yeah. so he's drawing on there there were like real traditions right and there were real songs and real songs that were in afion's voice you know within the tradition but he saw the the existing tradition as having been corrupted for one thing there's lots of references to christianity and appeals to st patrick in the songs and of course if these songs have their origin in the area in the period before christianization the, of the scots then he saw that as a later sort of accretion and so when he translates it or when he when he adapts this material for the english speaking audience he eliminates that right so he's in in some sense his prime is not the fabrication from nothing of the, the poetry but the um, sort of attempt to restore what he imagined to be the ancient sort of original form that that poetry must have had.
2: Mm, mm -hmm. And
0: these were a sensation, an international sensation. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, Napoleon, Thoreau, there's all of these luminaries who were really taken by this, and they they seem to have uh, viewed Ossian as a kind of Homer, and that, that Scottish national mythology was kind of like something you would find in the Iliad and the Odyssey.
1: Exactly. So the 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 analogy with with the Greek literary tradition was was really important. So Ossian sort of occupies that that place of the original poet and the founder of the the. What they're starting to talk about in this period as national tradition, right? So literature wasn't necessarily seen as limited or, or, or sort of defined by its national characteristics in you know, the 17th century and for part of the 18th century. But actually, the Scots are sort of in the forefront of starting to think about literature as a product of national culture. Um, mm-hmm. and so the, the analogy Greeks then, then sort of become the original nation in this, in terms of literature and they provide us, you know, our genres of epic poetry and tragedy and comedy and lyric poetry and all these kinds of things. And so, yeah, then you need to find that. So what are the roots of your national tradition? And then for the Scots, of course, it became Ossian. And yeah, the, the, it was, it was hugely popular for like uh, a century and a half. It was sort of read and imitated all over Europe. In fact, I was doing a bike tour in August this year in Northeast Iowa, and I made sure that I made a stop in the town of Ossian, Iowa, along the trip, just to just to <laughs> to mark it, you know. So yeah, people name their children after characters from these from the the poetry. So
0: right, and and just to I mean, often literature I think can be viewed as kind of a an idle pastime or or an artistic, you know, sort of a a hobby or, you know, something that just colors life a little bit. But here we're talking about uh, people who will say, well, you know, this is like, ignore the current borders or ignore what you know about the geopolitical world today. We are a people. We go back far. We have roots and we have there's something very important about who we were and how long we've been you know in that category and and we have accomplishments and achievements that can go back centuries that define us and shape who we understand ourselves to be
1: yes it's a very this the way that uh developing romanticism conceives of national culture right it's it's mm-hmm. a very it's very mm-hmm. concerned with origins origins are defining right and they see the origins, again, on an analogy with Greeks, in epic poetry, in these songs about mm-hmm. the battles, right, yeah. that formed the national community. And so that's, that's true for the Scottish, the Scottish material here. Uh, Macpherson publishes, recreates, uh, in some sense. Here, here he's being, he's really taking a small amount of material and extrapolating greatly from it. He creates the, the epic fingal. Right, that space that draws on these these songs where Fingal was a hero and there were battle battle songs, and he turns it into uh, a longer coherent narrative in an epic length poem.
0: Mm. Okay, so let's move over a few hundred miles, I guess, to the east of right. uh, to Queen the Queen's Court and Green Mountain manuscripts. What were those?
1: So those were. A pair of manuscripts, and there were actually a few other small, less significant manuscripts with just like a page of poetry or fragments of poems that were found around the same time. These were discovered in the second decade of the 19th century in 1817 and 1818, and they had epic poetry. They had these songs of the ancient battles of the Czechs driving out, for example, a Polish occupation of Prague or an invasion of the Tartars. From the East, as the Tartars were coming and sort of dominating Europe, along with some folk songs, some love songs, and 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 other shorter sort of poetic forms. And
0: when did these come to light?
1: So it's it's again the the, the end of the second decade of the 19th century, 1818, mm. 1817. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's it's worth noting that this is this is the period when, in some ways, the Ossianic material was at its height of popularity. The the number of editions that were released in uh, you know, translations and, and, and copies of the, the Oceanic poetry was highest in the first couple of decades of the 19th century. So Europe is sort of awash in this material at this moment.
0: Right. And how were these presented to the public? Were these also presented as, as translations from a more archaic form of the language? Or how did that work?
1: Yeah, in that way they're quite different actually from ASEAN. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of the type of poetry and you know the the appeal to sort of origins of national tradition, but these were presented actually as ancient manuscripts, right? In the original old Czech language. Oh right. um, Which at at that point in time, because the Czechs are coming out of a a counter reformation in which Czech was had been seen as a language of heresy and sort of sort of suppressed. and and Czechs are all being educated in German in their schools, there's very, very few people, a handful of people at best, who can read this old Czech language. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, but it's, you know, they manufactured, they took old parchment, they scraped off Latin texts, and they wrote these new (laughs) old texts over top of them and, and presented them as, you know, sort of one was supposed to come from sort of the 13th, maybe early 14th century, the other one. By, the, by its writing forms and, and, and its language forms suggested it came from maybe the 9th or 10th century, which would have pushed back you know, the, the date of the first writing we see in Czech by a couple of centuries. It was really quite spectacularly bold.
0: Right. My uh son once had to do a, a school project where he had to come up with an ancient document and we I think we soaked a piece of paper in tea or something and baked it yeah. in the oven for a while and we got a nice good yellowish uh crispy looking uh Page and, and he did quite well on his uh, sign. I don't think he fooled his teacher, but he, right. <laughs> he got a good grade. <laughs> and I know there are, I mean, forgers who, who do this with wine labels and who who do it with art. And I mean, they can be very convincing when they use, uh, I think some paintings will use old canvases and maybe even old paints that they have access to in order to try to trick people. So, okay. So let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and find out how, this, how all this happened and, and how it was received. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back with David L. Cooper. So David, who was Vaclav Hanka, and what role did he play in this?
1: Václav Hanka is our prime suspect in the <laughs> the conspiracy for the forging of these manuscripts. Yeah. At the time when they appeared, he was uh, a young man just out of university, and he was a he was a Czech nationalist. He was he'd actually been teaching some classes in Czech language at the university, and he'd been studying with the leading expert of the day on old Czech and old Slavic language, Josef Dobrovský. Mm-hmm. Um, was his tutor along with along with his roommate uh, Josef Linda, and so the two of them, when the second manuscript appeared, when the the Green Mountain manuscript appeared and and suggested you know Czech writing back in the ninth and tenth century, Dobrovsky, this sort of went against everything that he knew about uh, you know old Czech writing traditions, and he sort of immediately said, uh huh, I don't believe it, and I know who did it, and it's my <laughs> students. <laughs> Because oh, right. they, they know enough of the language to, to fake yeah. it, Yeah.
2: Right? right,
0: right. Oh, that's interesting. Boy, in the... Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Rope. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So that's one where it's, it's based on a kind of Leopold and Loeb story of a couple of college students who decide to murder... Uh, somebody, and then Jimmy Stewart plays their professor who comes over for dinner and is immediately suspicious of how they're acting and whether they've taken all of these ideas that he's given them a little too seriously. And it sounds like we would have a very interesting movie to have Dubrovsky, uh kind of uh, read this and think, oh no, I, I was on board with what they were doing when I thought it was legitimate, but this is they've taken things a step too far. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the Czech National Revival and and exactly how these manuscripts fit into that were, was it I mean were people were they kind of fighting for their lives in a from a national perspective? was this you know was it how essential was it for them to be able to say, well, we actually have a much longer history with a with much more much more elaborate or, or much more artistically uh, sound than has been understood before?
1: It it was really crucial in if you look at the the private correspondence of sort of the leading Czech national revivalists of the, you know, in in the first and second decade of the 19th century. You know, it's like a handful, two handfuls at most of people who are talking to each other and and they're trying. They have this program for reviving Czech as a language, as a language of education, right, as a scientific language, as a language of literature, as a way of, you know, sort of reviving. They thought, you know, their idea of nationalism and it's typical of the period is that it's, it's existed back into antiquity. Right. And we need and it's sort of been lost because, you know, we've been colonized by German people. And so we need to revive it. And so their their attempts to do that, they didn't have any sense that their project. I mean, there was no guarantee for their project. They, they talked sometimes quite pessimistically about whether the outcome would be positive, whether they'd be able to to sort of recreate a, a sort of living Czech national culture. And I think that, you know, not not that it wouldn't have happened without the manuscripts, but the manuscripts were certainly a very important part of what happened, right, and what enabled them to Uh, recruit people to the cause to tell people so you're being educated in German and, and German culture has gone through this tremendous renaissance in the late 18th century and into the 19th century. It's 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 kind of the leading literature in Europe right? Schiller and Goethe are idols to everyone. And so how do you convince people? No, you should be writing your poetry in Czech rather than in German. And you should be trying to write your scientific articles in Czech rather than in German. It's, it seems silly, because there's so few people actually that can read it In in the villages outside the cities, they speak Czech, but they're not learning to read and write it. Right. And so it's this comes along. And Teachers in the schools sort of hand it to the, their students to read outside of class and say, "Hey, you know, we're reading this German material, but look, we Czechs had something too."
2: Right,
0: right. You can imagine that people who before they would have an example like that handy would be kind of saying, "Well, okay, Czech is is fine that people are speaking it, but boy, this is you know, it's not an it's not a language for the educated people, or it's not fit to be a it's not a, a worthy kind of worldwide scale language because it doesn't have a Goethe, it doesn't have a Schiller. It's, I, I'm sure people would make that argument using Shakespeare or you know, the kind of traditions that English has if if they were faced with a similar situation in the UK or the US.
1: Yes, yeah. It's not the best poetry that was written in the first half of the 19th century in Czech, but it's up there. It's high quality and it's, and it's presented as full poetry, right? So right. It, it, the fact that it's a little bit more simple, um, and it has a sort of repetitive diction, that's how it's supposed to be, right? And mm-hmm. so it was quite effective. So like the, the, the closest analog and the material that they were probably copying most closely was folk songs that were being collected and published in the second decade of the 19th century by uh, the, the, the Serbian nationalist Vuk Karadzic he was publishing these South Slavic epic poems and everyone in Europe, they, they were a sensation as well. Everyone in Europe was reading them and comparing them to Ossian, right. Comparing them to the German Nibelumen lead, right. And and these kinds of things. And so the Czechs, I mean, the Czechs were desperately searching through their, their archives, right. For this kind of material and they weren't finding it. And so I think hanka and, and his collaborators recreated it and they used that South Slavic material as an important sort of, related Slavic model
0: that mm.
2: they probably mm-hmm. imitate.
0: Now, were Hanka and others aware do, that we know of of the example of ASEAN?
1: They, they cert- most certainly were. Like I said earlier, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of at its height of its popularity. At this moment, in the, in the early 19th century, there were a number of German translations already. And in fact, one of the translators, Michael Dennis, who translated it in the late 1760s, not that long after it was first published translated it into German, in his introduction to the material says, hmm, the Slavs, it seems, must have some similar kinds of material to this. I wonder why we haven't seen it yet. (laughs) Right. And so this sort of impetus to let's go look for it. And if we don't find it, maybe we can recreate it as well. Yeah.
0: How were they received? You mentioned some teachers who would give them to students kind of outside of class, but were they Mm best sellers or do we how well did they do in both within and, and around the world?
1: So the, the, the skeptical reaction of Dobrovsky was an obstacle to the Green Mountain manuscript for a number of years until there was a sort of scholarly refutation of, of his doubts. Mm. Um, but he never doubted the first manuscript. He never doubted the Queens Court manuscript. Um, but it takes a while for the momentum to build. Fairly early on, there's some musical settings that are composed for the lyrical songs. But the cult of the manuscripts, and they're, they're, there's a cult that definitely develops, sort of takes off with the, the, the development of the Czech National Movement. So it's only in the 1840s that, that it starts to become a mass movement, where you really have uh, large numbers of people who are start to be educated in Czech and, and start to you know, publish things in Czech. And it's when that movement gets going that these manuscripts sort of take on a sort of sacred status as the sort of founding documents. And they... Mm. At this point, they do become a bestseller. There's, there's edition after edition after edition that's coming out in the middle of the 19th century of these poems. And again, no one can still read them, right? They're still written in this older form of Czech that has a really different verb system. All of the narrative past tense forms of verbs in Old Czech are different from Modern Czech.
2: Mm-hmm. And so it's
1: sort of unrecognizable and unreadable in, in a basic way. But they're always published with German translation, Modern Czech translation. And by the middle of the century, they were, they'd also been translated into French, into English, into Italian, and into a bunch of other Slavic languages as well.
0: And can we measure any, uh, I guess, geopolitical impact in terms of, was it cited by artists around the world or by politicians anywhere or anything to sort of say, look, this is, you know, uh, kind of in the way that Ossian was?
1: No, not to that degree. It didn't reach that sort of uh, uh, height of popularity as Ossian because sort of by the time it starts to circulate, Ossian is also sort of on the decline in the second half mm. of the 19th century. There's mm-hmm. this new sort of rise of positivism, right, that starts to bring skepticism towards these these kinds of things. So there but there were I found articles published in American literary magazines that are basically plagiarized articles out of British British magazines, and so you know there was there was discussion, but I think they remained you know sort of on the periphery. If you were interested in Europe and the Slavs, then you might know about them,
0: mm-hmm. uh, right?
1: But they were never never the sort of big phenomenon that Ostia was,
0: right? So it must have been something though. As as they grew in popularity, you can imagine that the people who whoever forged it uh, would have been thinking, or maybe I should say fabricated it. The people would be thinking. Well, on the one hand, it's great. this is what we were hoping for to get this widespread audience for these and and to see it being read and the way it's changing people's minds. but also thinking, what if this all gets exposed? It's going to be worse. you know, if something is becoming more and more important to the Czech people, um, yeah. you know, then it's you're really gonna pull the rug out from under them if it comes out that these are hoaxes.
1: Yes, exactly. I've often wondered if they didn't do it as, you know, a little bit of a prank at some level to see if people would buy it. But then once people buy it, how do you retract it without doing damage, right? <laughs> and Especially as the years go by. So yeah. actually um, in the, the years like 1859 or something like that, there's a German language newspaper in Prague that publishes a series of articles about literary forgeries. And the last article accuses Hanke of forging Queens Court and Green Green Mountain manuscripts. There were reasons already by that point, sorts of, that some of these other smaller things that had been discovered, and all of these discoveries happen around Hanke and his friends, that were, had already come under skepticism, and had been shown to maybe be false. And so, there's this moment of doubt, and Hanke actually had to be pushed by other leading, you know, nationalists and patriots to sue the um, newspaper for libel. For having accused him of forging it he seemed reluctant right so you know i mean <laughs> he knows they're right probably you right know? And right so, but he does sue and he sues successfully because partly because the, the the person suing gets to frame the way that the the question is investigated and it was framed around the question of did he discover manuscripts right and so it goes back to you know this whole staged uh, moment where he goes into a church in in burkralovey in eastern bohemia with witnesses along and suddenly there's this manuscript in his hands and there were eyewitnesses to the fact that you know he sort of (laughs) found it in this in this vault in this church and got permission from the church to take it away and send it to the the national museum right and so that's what was investigated not any sort of you know literary critical uh examinations of the authenticity of the manuscripts and was the language right which it's not quite and and that kind of thing
0: so so he wins
1: the lawsuit
0: Right. And then, Wow he
1: dies like a year later, actually. So he gets this massive funeral celebration and a burial at a site that's starting to become sort of the resting place of famous national patriots and this kind of thing. So he dies a hero, really.
0: Mm, yeah, and he had been the librarian of the Czech National Museum. Yes. Right. Um,
1: a job that he likely got because he made the donation of this this major manuscript to the museum. Right. And a job that then got him access to all kinds of other older manuscripts. Right. And he did some good work in terms of uncovering old things. But he also did some good work in terms of fabricating new old things (laughs) where he's writing in the margins and in in between lines in in genuine Latin manuscripts, uh, you know, new ancient Czech translations from the Latin into Czech and this kind of thing.
2: Right.
0: I guess because of his death, he was spared the, uh, whatever the equivalent was of appearing on Oprah and confessing all of his <laughs> sins and, uh, <laughs> and his remorse. Uh, so, what's the current scholarly consensus? I understand we believe that they were, uh, fabricated, but we're not positive it was Hanka, or where, where, where do things stand now?
1: So there's, there's never been discovered any sort of smoking gun, any sort of correspondence or rough drafts or any of these kinds of things that would be sufficient to serve as a, a you know, here we go. We've got hard, you know, concrete material evidence of the, the fabrication. The evidence is circumstantial, but it's, it's so much circumstantial evidence at this point mm. that there's really no question that Honka was involved. That his roommate Josef Linda was involved. Probably his friend, who was an art restorer, was was involved in the fabrication of the material manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Right, and there were others probably who were in on it, who maybe weren't, you know, involved in writing the poetry or producing the manuscripts. So, and it's all based on, well, for one thing, the the, the language isn't quite correct, old Czech. So these again the the verb forms they were they had um, they'd gone out. <laughs> right. The, the old Czech had an aorist and an imperfect verb form that were used for narration of these events, and the modern Czech doesn't have those verb forms. And Hanka doesn't quite get them right, and he sometimes uses <laughs> the wrong one in in, 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 the, in the wrong situation. Right, and right. there's other things too where they're imitating because they're imitating Russian and and Serbian folk materials. They sometimes use things that grammatically are closer to Russian and Serbian than they are to old Czech. For example, the basic and conjunction, there's two, there's a, there's a, and there's E and modern Czech and old Czech use a with a much greater frequency than E and E has its very specialized sort of narrow usage. They're using E about 10 times more often than a, and that doesn't Mm -hmm. correspond to any other old Czech writing. So. These kinds of problems were initially like linguists in the in the sort of middle 19th century that were studying old Czech were sort of making exception, right? There's there's these kinds of documents and there's these that come from the oral tradition mm. and then the language seems to be a little bit different. And at some point you have enough exceptions and enough sort of um, a big body of material versus this small body of material. And, 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 and the linguists are finally saying, hmm, actually, maybe this stuff is just. Not genuine.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned this before, I think, but just to tease this out a little bit, Hanka had also been caught doing a. Didn't he alter some manuscripts or something? Or there were other incidents that kind of cast some doubt on his reliability.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So. For example, he came in 1849 to the, the board of the National Museum with a new discovery that was sort of a continuation of one of the poems, uh, the, the one from the, the the Green Mountain Manuscript. It was the legend of the founding of the Czech dynasty, and it was the prophecy of this, this Princess Libouche. was a genuine latin manuscript that that he had found in the national museum and and had it published and then suddenly he finds also a czech version of it and and at, at that point <laughs> i mean there had been enough sort of doubts around him and the, that the board sort of looked him at, looked at him and looked at the, looked at each other and said uh no this is a step too far
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's like here's a here's a latin manuscript i have and if you give me about six weeks i'll find one in check too Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So are these Czech manuscripts, are they worth reading today? Or is this of interest as a literary and historical phenomenon?
2: I hope they're
1: worth reading today because I've also published a translated edition into English of okay. the songs um, with yeah. Michigan Slavic publications. And that came out in uh, sort of the end of 2019. So just before the the pandemic and didn't have a lot of chance to uh, to promote it. But I think they are worth reading. I mean, it, you know, if um, people are still reading the the South Slavic songs collected by Karadzic, it's it's sort of a, you know, it's not, again, mass popular kind of interest. But if you're interested in, in, in folk traditions and if you're interested in these, these kinds of old po- poetry and poetry imitations, right, they're really not bad.
0: Right, right. Okay, yeah.
1: They're they're quite readable. They're they're interesting stories, right? And and because they have this whole aura of the scandal of their fabrication around them, it's really you know it's fun to read them and and think about how, like how they were being read. Uh, when everyone thought they were the real thing.
0: Right. Okay. So you answered a better question than I asked. Um, I should have asked it not as, as if they're worth reading, but in reading them, are you getting something other than, I mean, it would be fun to read it to say, well, this is the thing that fooled everybody, but it would mm-hmm. also be nice if the stories were good or there was some artistic merit to it that made them of interest even. Uh, and that's what I was wondering if they had Continued that kind of appeal, or if they really were just something to read as a curiosity of this hoax.
1: Yeah, I do think they they still have a readerly appeal. Okay, um, that, that that makes them you know, it, and it's not a huge amount of material really, um, and so it's you know you could you could do it in in an afternoon, sit down and read through them, and and, and it would, and I think it's enjoyable.
0: Yeah. And people, I mean, we have a lot to compare it with. We have the Scottish examples we talked about, or Robert Burns. When you were describing it before, it kind of reminded me of Robert Burns. Or you could compare it with other folk tales and songs and stories of that ilk as well and kind of see it from a different perspective. So, did, would you say this incident does it tell us anything about? readers and writers or about european history or how do you make sense of this incident and give it whatever uh, importance that it has
1: yeah i mean i think that the form that they took tells us a lot about what people wanted in mm-hmm. you know the second decade of the 19th century what they were looking for what was going to be most useful for uh, reviving national literary culture right i mean i think they hit that like square on the head of the nail the, the fact that it became such a phenomenon before, I mean, it's not really exposed until the, the 1880s, finally, and, and quite sort of slowly and reluctantly among you know, Czech patriotic circles, and it tells us a lot about how they conceived of national culture. Right. And it's I think it's different from how we conceive culture today. We conceive culture as not having such well-defined borders as being sort of more porous. And we understand that cultural creativity often takes the form of cultural interchange with other places. But Mm -hmm. the the romantic nationalist perspective is very invested in our own national originality. And it has to be ours and it has to be unique and different and belong only to us. And that was hard for them to give up. Right. this this sort of represented that to them, and it was very hard to give that up.
2: Yeah,
0: well, you can see that kind of anxiety. I mean, I, I'm just doing some. Uh... I just did an episode on Washington Irving and you could see that anxiety in America of the day of, you know, we we have to be able to produce writers that are not just translations of European writers or are not just mm-hmm. imported from the UK. Like if we're going to be a real place, a real nation, we've got to have some writers of our own who can compete on that level. Or, you know, I'm thinking of... uh Today in Canada where they have a certain percentage of what we broadcast has to be Canadian. It can't just be all shows from Hollywood and and from the US. And and a feeling that you kind of have to define yourself through your storytelling and through your art if you're going to be able to stand on your own.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and I think that that's it's, it's it's a narrow view of literature. It's a narrow view of creativity, right? I mean, it's 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 functional for Nationalist purposes, but I think we all have mm. good reason to be skeptical about certain aspects of nationalist purposes. I mean, one of the groups that in the early 20th century, after the, the scholarly community had certainly decided that these were fakes, that were promoting them still as genuine, was the Czech fascist movement
2: mm. in the 1930s, mm-hmm.
1: right? Because again, they're, they're sort of their narrow conception of nationalism and the need to have your own sort of thing that you can trumpet around. Um, the, the, the manuscripts still could serve that. Yeah.
0: And what you're really doing is in the case of of Hanka is to show that you're you're capable of a hoax. And in the case of the fascists that you're saying don't believe what your eyes tell you, just listen to us and and don't doubt and, you know, go along with what the authority is presenting because we will believe what we want to believe, not what is necessarily true. Right? Okay. Well, that was fascinating. David Cooper, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Mm, good stuff from David Cooper. And to top things off today, let's hear from Jesse Cavadlo, a professor and president of the Don DeLillo Society. After I talked to him about the works of Don DeLillo, I asked him this special question. Okay, we're joined now by Jesse Cavadlo, president of the Don DeLillo Society and editor of the book Don DeLillo in Context. Jesse, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written
3: there are a whole bunch of books that I've read and reread lots of times. So it's tempting to pick one of those, one of those, you know, mm-hmm. kind of comfort books. So Don DeLillo's white noise is a great example. I've read that book more than any other. I've also read Michael Chabon's the amazing adventures of Cavalier and yeah. play mm-hmm. many times. And considering that it's a 600 plus page novel, each time I go into it, it's not a small thing. I've read Jennifer Egan's a visit from the goon squad a lot of times. And each time I read it, I feel like I get more and more, connections. But I think in terms of this last book, I would probably go with something almost thematically having to do with last, as opposed to something that I've simply read before or found comforting. I would probably have to go with the essays of the philosopher Walter Benjamin, that he was Mm. very interested in something like ends of things, the purposes of stories, death, the way in which technology interfaces with the world. It feels like if I were going to end on Something, It would probably be the way in which Walter Benjamin was understanding the world. He also wrote these in this kind of Holocaust context. So in many ways, the world was ending for yeah, him right around right. that time. It sounds like a dark way to go out. But in some ways, it is also a uh, very clear vision of how he wants the end to be
2: mm-hmm.
0: as that. The window is closing and your world is shrinking, so to speak, but you'd be in the company of somebody who was going through something very similar and still writing at such an intellectually high level.
3: Exactly. That it's hard to say that other people have been through the end of the world, but some people have been, and Walter Benjamin was one of them.
2: Mm.
0: Now, I found this little note in the book that you edited, Don DeLillo in Context, that Michael Cunningham was asked about the books he would bring to a desert island, and he said, well, you know what, if I had to, I could just take a single DeLillo sentence with me and read it over and over again, which I thought was really beautiful and quite a tribute to Don DeLillo, but how about that instead of a last book?
3: (laughs) I might have to read that sentence a lot of times, but I think it would certainly work.
0: (laughs) OK, Jesse Cavallo, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That is a wrap as they say for this particular <laughs> for this particular episode of the history of literature. My thanks to Don whoop almost said Don Delillo. I guess I could thank him too. Why not? Thanks to David Cooper for joining me is what I meant to say. You can find his book on the Czech manuscripts at bookstores near you. And to Jesse Cavadlo for the cameo appearance. Walter Benjamin. We've been meaning to do an episode on Benjamin. Hopefully we'll get there soon. In the meantime, and as always, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.